This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And in this episode, I'm talking with someone whose Texas barbecue spot has become so popular that standing in line for two hours is just part of the experience. Aaron Franklin is now a barbecue legend, as well as a guy who's led something of a smoked meat renaissance in his home state. But he started out as a musician playing in bars around Austin. After a long run with a bunch of bands, his interest in barbecue became more serious, growing from backyard cookouts to selling barbecue out of a trailer to opening his own smokehouse. We'll talk about working in his grandparents' music shop, the building of Franklin Barbecue, and the rebuilding of it after a fire, plus his third cookbook, Franklin's Smoke, on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Aaron Franklin, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Heck yeah, thanks for having me. Congrats on the new book. I've got a copy right here, and it's called Franklin Smoke. And if the point was to make people want to eat more barbecue, I think you've definitely succeeded. Well, mission accomplished. Pretty excited about the third book. We always kind of meant for it to be a trilogy, even though I guess the publisher didn't know that. (laughs) But yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. The pictures are great. Same team that's worked on the other two, Wyatt McSpadden on photography, Jordan McKay, uh, my co-author on this stuff. I think it turned out really nice. Well, I think it looks great. And we will get into the book more in a minute. But I wanted to start out just asking you a little bit about where you grew up. Well, I grew up on the side of a highway here in Texas, a little place called Bryan College Station. Not much of excitement there, really. Grew up in a record store that my grandparents owned. Grew up in a restaurant that my parents owned for a couple years. You know, I didn't quite realize how hard it was because I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere around in there. And it's like, ooh, this restaurant thing's fun. I want to do that. Uh, not really realizing how insane running a restaurant really is. And it did happen to be a barbecue place, too. So it was a little harder. But yeah, that's pretty much my childhood. I moved to Austin 27 years ago, right out of high school. So College Station, does this mean you were a big Aggie fan? Nope, it sure doesn't. <laughs> I moved to Austin when I was 18 and did my thing like any other kiddo that really didn't know what they wanted to do and moved straight to Austin with a bunch of friends and played music for years until barbecue happened. Well, Aaron, tell me about who the cook was when you were growing up. Could be a mom, dad, grandparent. I mean, obviously you were in the restaurant business, but when you think of that person in your family who really stood out as a cook, who was it? I think I'm going to go and say my grandfather on my mom's side. He grew up in in Southern Louisiana, made his way through East Texas over to Bryan and stuff. And really, as a kid, all the food that kind of got me on this cooking path, these slow foods and making roux and doing etouffees and pot roast and all that kind of stuff, that's really for my grandparents. And both of my grandparents cooked a lot. But my grandfather is the one that would make an etouffee or would make a roux and be like, hey, boy, get over here. Let me show you how to make this. That kind of in cahoots with what my parents were doing at the barbecue restaurant. Barbecue restaurant wasn't what we're doing here in Austin at Franklin Barbecue. It wasn't this crazy, tender, luscious, delicious, salty, fatty barbecue that we know now. It was just more kind of old school barbecue from the 80s. The evolution of barbecue has gone all over the place over the years, but it was that style. So 
really what got me into barbecue initially was a hybrid between just the barbecue thing, being around fire, love cooking on fire, think it's neat like everybody else. It's super primitive and really cool. The slow foods version that my grandparents did with making the pot roast or just slow cooking stews and stuff like that and making pots of gumbo. And that also accidentally got me into a new restaurant that we opened about a month ago that actually is like a Cajun po'boy gumbo shop. Yeah, I saw that you just opened that, and I was wondering about your connection to Louisiana and to New Orleans and to Po' Boys and all that kind of food. Yep. Well, there you have it. It all goes back to my grandparents. What was your grandfather's name? His name was Thomas Howard, and he was a pedal steel player, so that also probably had a lot to do with me playing music as well, because they owned a music store. He was a pretty good cook. My grandma was, too. They were both very good cooks. Wow. And I'm guessing that he probably was making things for a crowd. No, 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 not at all. Oh, no? Actually, I don't ever really remember them having people over. Every once in a while, his old Texas Playboy buddies from the Bob Wills days would come over on a Sunday and they would play music and stuff at the shop. Really, their cooking was just daily stuff. They lived next door to the music store. I was probably about 12 when I really started working there, selling guitars, making guitar repairs and stuff like that. It was a music store that also sold records. So it kind of evolved over the years. They lived next door and I would just walk next door every day and eat lunch at their house because it was free and it was delicious. That's just what they cooked. They just made big Sunday meals, having a big honking piece of pot roast on a Wednesday afternoon really didn't seem that strange to them. (laughs) Right. And it doesn't seem strange to me either. (laughs) No, sounds pretty dang good. So Aaron, I interview a lot of musicians on this podcast. You got a lot of music in your family and in your past. Tell me a little bit about your music background. I started playing guitar when I was, oh golly, probably 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that range too. And then switched to drums, played in bands forever. Terrible, super loud, unlistenable rock and roll. And I still do play. I toured a bunch and played a bunch of music pretty much forever until Franklin Barbecue opened. It turns out when you run a restaurant or a food trailer, there's really no time for anything else. So I kind of stopped playing music until 2017 when our restaurant caught on fire and we were down for three months while rebuilding the restaurant and the smokehouse and stuff. And I kind of got back into playing music then and I've been doing it ever since. So give me an idea of what a gig would look like. Did y'all have a regular gig at maybe a club in Austin or were you traveling a little bit? What were you doing? Traveled a lot. I spent a lot of time in stinky vans. And, you know, like any kid in the 90s, jump in a van, play some music, book some shows. I played a lot all over the place. Yeah. No necessarily weekly standing things, but often. What were some of your band names? Oh, they were terrible. I don't even want to go over them. Awful. No one liked them. No one liked them at all. So when you think about music and barbecue, do those two pursuits have anything in common for you? Oh, I think they do. I feel like barbecue is kind of like the jazz music of the food world. It could be like all these fancy kind of tweezer food orchestrations and compositions and stuff like that. But really, I tend to layer food in a similar way that I would layer music. I draw a lot of analogies between music and food constantly. We run our restaurant like a band. They're pretty much tomato, tomato. It's almost the same. But when you think about building flavors and you've got these low roasty flavors, you've got these root notes, these darker notes, could be a roux, could be Maillard reaction, 
could be smoke, could be whatever. And then much like mixing sound or recording music, you kind of work through the bandwidth. So it's the same thing with all these flavors. You get these light, bright, citrusy, acidic notes up here. You get the salts, you get the layers. And if you think about building flavors, like building sound, EQing out some recording or something like that, they're pretty much the same. I think of food in a very similar way. Well, and they're both super ephemeral. They're in the moment and then they're gone. <laughs> and then you got to do it again. <laughs> it's true. You either hit repeat or you just start cooking again. Yeah. <laughs> so Aaron, there are a lot of barbecue legends in Texas. You seem to have figured out a lot of this for yourself, but I'm wondering if there was a mentor who stood out or someone who really kind of inspired you when it came to the art of great barbecue. No, not really. I'm really stubborn and I like to figure things out on my own. I'm that weird guy that goes to Ikea, buys some stuff, throws away the instructions and builds it and then puts it on Craigslist to give it away. I love a good puzzle and I like to figure things out. Again, much like music, I don't want anything outside of me to influence what I'm doing. So I don't eat it in other barbecue places. I listen to a ton of music, but if you're making up a song or working on a part or something like that, a lot of times you just got to put the blinders on because you want it to come from your heart. You don't want to have any kind of outside influence. That's very much how I am with barbecue. It's got to come from the soul. You can't fake the magic there. But I'm also really stubborn on just figuring out processes by myself. Yeah. I don't really want to have like, oh, well, this is how you cook this. Well, what's the fun of figuring that out? I kind of want to struggle with it a little bit and see if either I fail upwards into a better way or just decide that I don't like something a certain way. Or maybe I just have a light bulb and a eureka moment like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. I really like this. And it may be super different from what anybody else is doing. And that's awesome if it is. But that way, at least when I look back on stuff, I can call it mine. Yeah. No one else can really lay claim to what I'm doing because I know that I've really did put the blinders on. I don't care what other people are doing. I just want to do something I'm proud of. That's very much how I started off in barbecue. And now it's a lot harder to do that stuff because technology is there. And some people put videos on YouTube. Some people write books about stuff. And I think it's awesome that we've kind of evolved into that where people could look at books and watch videos and masterclasses and stuff like that. But for me, I kind of just like to figure it out the hard way. Yeah. You know, before you opened the restaurant, you were doing a bunch of kind of backyard parties that really mm -hmm. became a thing. What were some of the reactions that you got from people in those days, you know, when they tasted your cooking? Um, you must have seen something happening that got you excited about what you were doing. Yeah, for sure. I was excited just to hang out and make food and try to make it better all the time. But those backyard barbecues back in the day, they were super positive and everyone course was so supportive and even if the food wasn't very good it's like oh my gosh it's great of <laughs> gross it's tough it's too salty it's too fatty but people are really nice and really encouraged us to do more people were so supportive a few friends back in the day really went above and beyond by going around crowds at little backyard barbecues and collecting money to help offset the cost of these things or really going above and beyond to help out and get stuff or work the things or bus tables or go get ice last minute or go pick up rental tables and stuff like that. But it really was Stacy and I and a bunch of friends just kind of hanging out. And the encouragement was definitely there. And actually, when we opened up Franklin Barbecue in, oh, golly, I guess December of 2009, the original email list that we had were just a bunch of friends from the Backyard Barbecues. Mm. 
So we just kind of organically moved into that stuff. Oh, it sort of felt like a bridge from one thing to the next. Well, it's just a real organic growth. You know, we kind of 10 people over for a backyard barbecue. The next one's 20. The next one's 50. The next one's 100. And then you open a trailer and then that builds up. And then you just organically move into a building and really just kind of figuring it out. It's not like we started with investors or a building or really any money at all. So when you start super small potatoes like that, it's pretty easy to only go up because you can't really go down. (laughs) Well, Aaron, I mean, you've had a line at the restaurant pretty much from the first day that you opened. And I'm wondering if you can kind of take me back to that first day and what that felt like for you and Stacy. Well, we had lines at the trailer a month or two after we opened, and that definitely happened very quickly. And then when we were getting into the restaurant, we opened at the restaurant in March, March 11th of 2011, a year and three months after we opened the trailer. And there was a huge line out there, but really I kind of don't remember because I was so sleep deprived from cooking overnight and doing the ribs and cutting every lunch and doing all that stuff. I mean, we were working a thousand hours a day. It was definitely not uncommon to have a 70 plus hour work day with no sleep and not going home or any of that kind of stuff. So I think in hindsight, maybe I was a little more delirious than I thought I was, fueled by uh, espresso and adrenaline. But I remember looking out there and be like, oh my God, there's so many people outside. And of course, that line on our first day of being in the actual building, these days would be considered a really slow day. Like, oh my gosh, what's going on? It's freezing cold, it's raining, and there's a tornado at the same time. At the time, that line was pretty, pretty intense. But we also only had two barbecue pits. Right. So it was kind of over the years up until... Maybe about, uh, I guess about 2014 is really when we moved into the original smokehouse. But up until then, you know, we'd have a barbecue pit. That's all we could cook. We sold out. I was always building a new cooker. So when a new one would come online, the lines would get 24 briskets longer, pretty much. And then I would start the next cooker. And then the line would get 24 briskets longer. So it was always the length of the line and how fast we ran out was always dependent on how much food we could physically cook. Yeah. Which was dependent on how much time I had to build barbecue pits. Right. (laughs) Well, I've stood in that line and I think I was there for about two hours, but it was definitely worth it. Awesome. That's great. Well, we use a lot of salt. (laughs) Well, I think I had a Shinerbach as I was waiting and it went by fast and everybody was having a good time. Everybody felt very festive. Heck yeah. People were kind of talking to each other and having fun. I mean, nobody was rushed or stressed and they were just excited about getting up there and getting some great barbecue. Yeah. Well, it's really sweet. The line kind of filters out the cranky pants, as I like to say. Anybody that gets to the counter is really there because they just want to be there and you got to hang out somewhere. The energy is so much fun out there. It's just pure kindness. It's just so neat to see so many people build friendships and meet each other and just have a good time. It's like you're throwing a little backyard party every day. What do you recommend people get when they get up there? I had a ridiculously full plate, (laughs) but I remember sampling some things when I got up to the counter. What do you tell people to try? Well, I would say after standing in line for that long, you darn well better get everything because you can always take it to go. After the break, I'll talk more with Aaron Franklin about the fire that closed his restaurant for a while, how Texas barbecue is and isn't changing, and his new cookbook, Franklin Smoke. 
This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Aaron Franklin of Franklin Barbecue. Yeah, yeah. So, Aaron, I know you've had some setbacks. You talk about this in the book, but one of the biggest setbacks was the fire that you had back in 2017, which pretty much destroyed the entire restaurant. What are some things that you took away from that experience? It wasn't really that bad. It destroyed the smokehouse and we had water and smoke damage in the kitchen, which is between the dining room and the back part. But being realistic about what we're doing, we have a lot of fire in a building. We cook 24 hours a day. There's always a threat that something's going to happen. You can only take so many precautions, but at the end of the day, you got to be ready for something. And that's really what we do and what anybody does in a restaurant. You never want to be reactive. You always want to be proactive. So kind of already had a pretty good plan in place for what if kind of scenario. So the fire, even though it was terrible, no one got hurt. We had good insurance. We were a busy restaurant. The demand was there to get back open. And it was a minor setback, but it also at the same time, gave me a chance to rewire the front part of the building, which we desperately needed to bring in new electrical service. Just old infrastructure kind of things. The building's from the 60s and it's still falling apart, but cooking 24 hours a day, you never get a chance to do big maintenance. You physically have to close down for several days. So it really did give us a needed break. Everybody continued to get paid and it was fine economically, but you know, it gave us a good window to do some upgrades on the front part and fix a lot of things. Like we redid a bunch of plumbing while we were closed and stuff like that. So it wasn't all a terrible thing. Yeah. And I'm also a really positive person. Well, I can tell, I can tell. Like, I mean, oh, God, we had a fire. <laughs> what are we going to do? It's like, no, I know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to fix it. I'm going to go to Home Depot, get some stuff, and we're going to come back a lot better than we were. Yeah. Well, that's a great outlook because that must have been a bit of a shock to get that call and rush over there and see all that work going up in flames. Must have been a tough day. Well, I was a maintenance guy, so it was expected. (laughs) (laughs) Still real lost there. (laughs) So, Aaron, you said that you opened on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, which is a date that has a lot of importance to you. What is it about that day and that week that makes it so special for Franklin Barbecue? 
It's just a normal kind of week for us, but it's really the people that show up around the holidays. And over the years, we've been doing this, gosh, I guess it'll be 14 years this December. Is that right? Oh, man. But you kind of start to see the same families and families get together. They show up for their annual Franklin barbecue Thanksgiving week thing or Christmas week thing. So that was kind of a push after the fire was to definitely get open for that week. And my suspicions were correct. It was a real kind of tearjerker of a day of hearing all these people's stories and just some really, really touching stuff. It was a little bit of a push. We didn't want to miss out on our big holiday week over there because it's busy, but there's just also a ton of people that travel in town. And that's just kind of part of their holiday tradition, I guess. But that's also the same day we reopened post-pandemic after we were shut down for a while. So it seems anything weird that happens, you can assume that we'll open on the Tuesday of Thanksgiving week. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you've got people in town, people maybe returning, seeing their families, and they're making the pilgrimage to the restaurant. Yeah, they come from all over. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, as much as Texans are proud of their barbecue tradition and history, it seems kind of like the glory days of Texas barbecue are really right now. And that's something you talk about a little bit in the book. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think the glory days have kind of been going on for quite a few years now. Doesn't seem like it's going downhill anytime soon, but you never know. It could. It's only getting bigger and better kind of everywhere, all over the world, really. Yeah. I want to ask you about brisket, Aaron, which over the last 10 years has really spread all over the South. I mean, it used to be just really a Texas thing, and now it's everywhere, and it seems to be growing in popularity. I'm wondering if you're seeing things go the other way as well, where you're seeing more pork in Texas, or or has that not happened as much? We're seeing a little bit of pork. When we opened in 09, Pork really wasn't on the menu. You kind of got pork ribs in East Texas, but no one was really doing pulled pork. And now I think it's pretty common down here. I remember for months and months and months, people would show up like, pulled pork, what the heck is that? Like, well, it's pork and it's just really tender. It's pulled. But I think now, of course, the internet plays a huge part of that too. But I think pork's kind of gotten down here a little bit. Nobody's really doing whole hogs or anything down in Texas. A couple of people have tried, and it just didn't quite hit right. I think maybe people are a little confused by it. And Texas is also kind of stubborn, to be fair. So maybe we're just kind of still stuck on brisket. Who knows? (laughs) So let's talk recipes for a second. I'm not going to ask you how to cook a brisket because that's a whole podcast unto itself. Yeah, I don't know that we have time for that. I think it's about 16 pages in the book. Um, I do, however, want to ask you, quickly about cooking on the big green egg, which you have a chapter on. And that's something that you seem to have come around to or found a solution for. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so one of the goals for the book, and I've been trying to sort of figure this out for for years. So many people email in or I talk to them at the restaurant or at events or whatever. I'm like, oh my God, how do I make this brisket on the big green egg? It's like, well, I'm going to figure it out one day. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to crack the code. Because News alert, I like to figure things out. But what I learned doing the book is that a big green egg brisket is always going to taste like a big green egg brisket. You can't cheat the flavor on it. We have some hacks in the book, some things that we figured out with how to clean it up and make it burn a little bit cleaner, increase the airflow to get a better bark, which is kind of a problem with big green eggs. They just retain so much moisture in there just with the lack of convection and all that stuff. So there's definitely some tricks in the book, some modifications you can do and some side fires and stuff like that. 
And we ended up making some really, really good briskets. But what we learned is they'll never taste like an offset smoker brisket. It's just a different tool, completely different thing going on there. Maybe delicious. And they were delicious. But I kind of gave up on my hopes and dreams of making a Franklin brisket on a big green egg. Just not the right tool for the job. So if you have one and that's all you got to use, then... You're going to make a really excellent brisket on a big green egg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're so easy to cook on. And they're so they're so user-friendly. But that's kind of the trade-off, though, is with an offset cooker, you have to stare at it all the time. You always have to put a log on, pick this up, roll this over, spritz this, spray this, look at that, smell the fire, stick your finger up, figure out where the wind's blowing, you know, if a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere. But with a big green egg, you don't have that control, but you also get the user-friendliness of it at the same time. There's a recipe in the book for a spicy barbecue sauce, and it just has two ingredients, which is my kind of recipe. Tell me about this one and what makes it work. Franklin Barbecue doesn't really put new things on the menu very often or ever. It took me five years almost to put a jalapeno cheese sausage on the menu. But during the pandemic, I made a spicy barbecue sauce for the restaurant, and now we bottle that. So we thought it'd be fun to put it in the book. And really, the one in the book is a much easier version because the one that we make, we have to roast peppers. We do all kinds of stuff, and it's really got an elaborate recipe. So the one in the book is kind of a riff on introducing some Tex-Mex style, like chilies and stuff like that, some anchos, habanero, red jalapeno, stuff like that and using our original sauce as the base in a lot of ways. So I think that's kind of a cool way to amend it. It definitely has more than two ingredients, but it's pretty darn simple. And it's a really delicious sauce. It's become my favorite sauce. Well, and I suppose if you don't happen to have the Franklin barbecue sauce, you can use what you have around and it will improve it um, or give it a little kick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just riff a little bit. That's the fun part. All right. Well, last question, Aaron. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Am I Southern? Huh. <laughs> I guess I never thought about it. I'm not real sure. <laughs> Texas is kind of in a weird spot. Uh, so yes, Southern, but also we clip into like some Midwest vibes a little bit down here. But Austin is such a melting pot of so many different places. I guess being in Austin, I don't really think about it being Southern. But the thing that I do notice is just the overall friendliness of everybody. Everyone's just so nice. I was willing to slow down and talk to you a little bit. And I think that's really kind of, in a lot of ways, what makes Franklin Barbecue Franklin Barbecue. We try to run that place like a Southern grandma's house. <laughs> and I think we did a pretty good job. It's sort of based on my grandparents, too. Just being kind to everybody and always being like, oh, what are you doing today? All right. Well, good chatting with you. Well, it's kind of like that line. That sort of says it all to me. That's about as much fun as I've ever had standing in a line. <laughs> well, good. Glad we pulled it off. <laughs> All right. Well, Aaron Franklin, thanks for being on Biscuits and Jam. Absolutely. Good talking to you guys. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Aaron Franklin. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my interview with Donna Jean Godcho McKay, the acclaimed backup singer and longtime member of the Grateful Dead. We'll see you then. <laughs>